you have you have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Part 1 of Paul Holden Graber's Conversation with Cheryl Strade. Hello, this is Cheryl. Hello, Cheryl. This is Paul Holdengraber calling you. How are you? It's uh, lovely to talk to you. It is so lovely to talk to you. It's been it's been so long. Where do I find you now? I'm in Portland, Oregon. I'm at home in Portland, Oregon. The last time we talked, we were in New York City, and we had such a fun time. Oh, it was so great. How long ago was that? I can't even remember anymore. I thought you were going to be able to tell me. I'm going to guess that it was, was it the summer, was it summer, or it was like about 2013, because I think Wild was, had been out about a year, was it, was Wild out in paperback when, when maybe it was my paperback tour. Maybe, maybe it was. What I, what I remember so clearly is that I came on stage with some notes, and Either the notes got disorganized or I got disorganized, but you just said, you know, let go of those notes. You might not have used quite those words and just, just let's, let's, you freed me from, from any script. Not that I really have a script, but I, I took comfort in something that was written and you said, you know, let's just talk to each other, which is exactly what we're doing now. So you, you helped me at a moment which was really critical. Oh, that's so wonderful, and that's, I try to remind myself that when I'm in interview, I've been in the situation of interviewing people on stage before, where you get sometimes nervous, and you think you need to rely on those notes, but you and I know how to have a conversation, I mean, you're a great conversationalist, right, so, so yeah, I, I try to liberate you from any, any ideas you had about your notes propping you up, you don't need those notes. I, I and you know, it, it's it's so hard to remember that in fact when we when we talk to each other we don't know what will happen next and so preparing i mean i always say that uh, improvisation is something you prepare and you prepare it of course to a point and then you let things flow and then you let things flow and you let you see where they lead you um what 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 have you been up to to this morning and recently I have, well, this morning, it's three hours behind you uh, in Portland, Oregon. So I woke up and got my kids off to school. I have a, a son and a daughter who are in fourth and fifth grade. And the morning routine, you know, each each morning is as if they've never heard of the idea that they need to brush their teeth and put their shoes on and so forth. So <laughs> I, I know this. So, <laughs> you know, as a mom, I'm like, Okay, why do I, every morning, why do I have to say, did you brush your teeth? I mean, it's something you have to do every morning, and yet I somehow have to ask that question every morning, or it won't get done. And then I did some email and had coffee and talked to my husband about the day ahead and waited your lovely uh, phone call. How, it sounds like a perfect morning, maybe with the, with the exception of the very beginning, but I think that you know with with children it 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 seems that we are always reinventing reinventing things but in in a sense um it's our duty and our our um, it, it behooves us to be that way i so, think so i mean i also think that it's the kids rely on us to do that you know certainly if 
uh, it, for whatever reason, I didn't say it to them. I wonder if they would eventually figure it out themselves. They would say, they would learn how to be a little more self-sufficient. That's part of letting them grow up is, is, is actually stepping back from that constant, uh, you know, questioning and, and guarding and guiding, you know. And so my kids are reaching this. Uh, they're, they're at that, that juncture now where they're starting to leave childhood a little bit and enter into that kind of preteen uh, sort of era. So I think we're going to have some changes like that coming up soon. You know, I've, I've, um, I have to tell you, I just recently got your your book of quotations, Brave Enough, mm-hmm. and. I, I I think we both I mean I certainly suffer from quotomania. I have an, an urgency to to quote and in your in your introduction what, what seemed to me particularly interesting because it spoke to me so much about what I what I feel so often is that these quotations offer solace and consolation and we, we need them not really to to name drop, certainly not, but because in a in a way they are signposts. Do you agree? And I think too they they signposts that tell us not just who we are, but maybe who we aspire to be. Right. Right. Yeah. You... I, I, for me, you know, quotes like you, you consolation is a big one. Um, also awakening, I would say, and that's that's I guess what I mean when I say they tell us who we aspire to be is. Sometimes a quote can wake us up to a truth, and I think that whenever we wake up to a, to a truth, it, it feels like it, we're newly recognizing something, but in my experience, what that usually means is it's something that you already know, uh, that, that maybe for whatever reason it hasn't risen to the surface, you've denied it, or you, you, you want to pretend that isn't the truth, but a, when a quote, a good quote, concisely captures that feeling you have inside and expresses it on the page, that's a really powerful, or sometimes it's not on the page, sometimes it's something someone says. Um, it can be really powerful. Do you, um, of, of course I have to ask you, and I, I think we, we, we might have a, a, a brief moment of, of quotation happening here. Do you have an example of this? An example of a quote? Of, an example of a quote that... Um, vivifies you or enlivens you or wakes you up? Um, and then, of course, the question is, wakes you up from what and to what? Yes. Well, you know, in my introduction to Brave Enough, one of the things I write about is just, you know, how sometimes it can be the simplest statements that are the most profound. And, you know, I, I think we get a little confused sometimes when we when we associate um the, the deepest, most sort of amazing things that we've ever heard, when we attribute those things to, to like highly sophisticated language or really complicated thinking. In my own life, so often it is the simplest statements that have had the biggest impact. And, you know, in the introduction I wrote about when I was about 12, I was reading Madeline Langell's novel, A Ring of Endless Light, which is such a, a great book. And I stopped reading when I came to this line that was, maybe you have to know the darkness before you can appreciate the light. Yeah. And the reason that that was powerful to me at age 12 is I don't know that anyone had ever told me by that point in my life that part of beauty and lightness and goodness was also darkness and suffering. And I, at age 12, was trying to grapple with 
some darkness and suffering. I, I had a father who wasn't uh, what fathers are supposed to be. And I grieved that mightily and tried to make sense of it as a kid. And when I read that line in that novel, it gave me a way to to think about the idea that I could carry that darkness in me in a, in a joyful and happy life. That it, that it wasn't about me saying, you know, shutting that darkness out because it couldn't be any part of my life. Once once I realized that, that, that actually journeying through darkness can often lead to light, that was just such a, a wake-up for me, such an inspiration to me. With, with, your, with your children now, one is in fifth grade, so probably about 12? Yeah, my son is 11 and my daughter's 10. The, the fifth grader is 11 and this fourth grader is 10. Do you, do you, do you think that they are, they are looking for this in, in what they read? Do you feel that they have found it? Have they ever mentioned anything of that nature to you? Yes, you know, uh, that, that's, it's so funny you mentioned this because it was just the other day, you know, here I've been talking about quotes and, and this book, Brave Enough, and just a couple of days ago, Uh, my daughter um, showed me this book of quotes that I didn't realize that she had. Some friend had given her this book of quotes, and she said to me, oh, my, here's my favorite quote, and she read it to me, and I, I just was so delighted. And, of course, I'll paraphrase it. It's, it's something like, um, don't tell me I can't reach for the stars when there's footprints on the moon, I think is the quote. And I just delighted in that because she is doing what I have done since I was a kid and what, you know, millions of people around the world do. We find those sentences or phrases that speak to us. And there again is such a great example of, you know, the person my daughter aspires to be is somebody who dreams big and who believes in herself. And that's just such a beautiful, you know, that, that quote is an expression of that, that faith that she wants to keep. What did you say to her? I said, that's a really wonderful quote, and it's a, a great thing to hold in your heart. And she nodded and laughed, and, you know, we, we talked about the power of, of language, essentially. What are some quotes that you love, Paul? Oh, you know, um, uh, uh, so many. I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm a walking... Uh, quotation machine, nearly. Um, th there's one that I adore by Oscar Wilde, where he said, it is only superficial people who do not judge by appearance. <laughs> And it is, the reason I love it is because, like much of Wilde, it is a time bomb. You sort of laugh at it, and then you realize, oh my God, what is he in fact saying? And it makes you reflect and think for a long time. And what I'm also really interested in is how certain, well, a couple of things. I'm, I'm always interested in the relationship between um, taste and aging. And certain things that we found extraordinary at 12, how they, how they appear to us when we're 22, when we're 54. You know, how do things change over time and what do we remain faithful to? And in what I do, which is chat with people, um, I'm, I'm particularly interested in using quotations that um, I love and using them on, as it were, different people and seeing how, how they react. And the way they react, you know, gives me um, a hint or a clue of who they are, in a sense. 
Right, right. I think that's such a fascinating question you just posed about the way taste changes over age. What does it make you think of? Excuse me? What does it make you think of? Well, it makes me think of, you know, all of the... I mean, we've all had this experience, I think. You, so many, especially as a writer, so many books were so deeply influential to me in my youth. Uh, books that I read in my 20s that seemed to really open my whole life or, you know, make my head sort of spin uh, with, with their enormity and their, and their power and their truth. And, and sometimes I've gone back to read those books that I loved, and then, you know, the 40-something me doesn't love them or, or even thinks sometimes that they're, um, you know, a bit much or a bit over the top or not as good as, certainly not as good as I remember them being. And what I've come to, to realize in that regard is that, um, that, that that looking back and reassessing, it, it's, it's not the new truth. It's just one truth that sits alongside the other truth, which was that was a great and brilliant and powerful book that had a big influence on me and that it doesn't have that same influence when I am at a different stage of my life, doesn't say anything about the book. It says everything about me. And I think sometimes it's the memory of a book that matters more than um, your shifting opinion of it. One example, um, have you read the, the journals of Anais Nin? I don't know if I've seen yeah, Anais Nin, I, th- I think I, I've read, I don't know if I've read the whole journals, but when, when I had a Henry Miller moment, I certainly did read some Anais Nin. Yeah. When I was in my 20s, I read all of her diaries, several volumes, and I just absolutely loved them. And they, they really, really opened up my life as both a writer and a woman. And I, have, you know, I think about them now almost with a sort of, like, I'm a little embarrassed that, like, they mattered so much to me in my 20s. And then I came to realize, no, you know, and the other, what I mean by that when I say embarrassed is, you know, now when I read them, they do feel a little grandiose in places, a little over the top. And yet, that's who I was in my 20s. That's who most of us are in our 20s. We have a, a sort of um, amplified, or, or certainly I did, an amplified emotional life. And it's because, for good reason, I was grappling so much in those years with who I was as a writer and as a sexual being. And so part of that, that questioning and seeking entailed uh, maybe an over, like an, like an over-focus on those aspects of my life. And, and Anais Nin reflected that back to me in her journal. She validated me in a way that I don't need validating anymore. And that doesn't obliterate the, the, their power in that era of my life. No, but you know what, what, what strikes me is that we, we, books are like people we meet. We meet them at a certain moment in our lives. And at a certain moment in our lives, either we, we enjoy their, their friendship and companionship or we don't. And sometimes we are very um, cruel in the way we reject people at a certain point and then discover them later and recognize that we didn't give them a chance. And the same thing happens with books. Uh, certain books speak to us at a certain moment, and when we go back to them, um, we either find in them something new that makes us love them in a new way, or we look back at the look back at our former love and say, "Oh my God, how could I have loved this? This is really not very good." Or we begin to think, "This is good, but I no longer like it." Right. 
Yeah. No, that's really true. I, I, I think that, that certainly that um, that reverse thing has happened to me, where you you know I pick up a book and can't get into it, and can't and then can't get into it, and then you know years later I pick it up and it's one of the best books I've ever read. You know that kind of um, it was at the right moment, and I hear this a lot as a writer from readers, and I'm fascinated by this because people often say to me, um, they, they say two things to me about Wild. Um, you know, when they're, when they're talking about this sort of thing, um, they'll say, listen, you know, my mom or dad, you know, just died a few months ago, so, uh, I can't read wild right now. Or the other group of people will say, my mom or dad died a few months ago, and so I had to read wild right now. And I think it's fascinating the way we decide, some people, some readers decide to, um, if they've had a particular experience, they want to read everything about that experience. And others say, no, no, I have to protect myself against those sorts of stories. It's too much to read about somebody else's grief when I'm in my own grief. And, you know, I tend to be the kind of person, after my mom died, I wanted to read everything anyone had ever written about losing their mother. Uh, you know, to me, that's the kind of, I needed to immerse myself in those sorts of stories because they felt like a consolation. To other people, it's upsetting. I mean, you know... Um Obviously, while you were talking, I was thinking of our earlier comments about why we seek quotations to sort of lift us up, uh, to sort of help us in moments of either despair, grief, or, for that matter, joy. Um, what the words we need that someone else has expressed perhaps better than we have that offer us... Um, a window into understanding who we are, and you know it's really interesting because in a in a in a former conversation I had with Edwidge Danticat, she is right in the middle now of of writing a book about the way the art of writing about death. Mm. So she's she's doing an anthology about very various writers who have tackled the all important subject we all come to, which is dying. And her family, to some extent, has found in her interest now something slightly gloomy. And she, of course, understands that. But for her, it, it, you know, it, it offers her such an understanding of, of who she is as a writer and how to write about some of the subjects that are the most difficult to express. Yes, I, I think I think really there are kind of two kinds of people in that in that regard. That there are people who actually are in some ways comforted comforted or consoled by embracing the the, the sad aspects of life. Things like that. Like I I don't find it. It's a question I get a lot. You know, people will say, "Well, it, how how can you?" write those sad things. Aren't, aren't you crying when you're writing and isn't it hard? And, and I'm always a little mystified by that question because the answer is, yes, I sometimes cry when I write, but I don't experience that as so hard. To me, the harder thing to do would be to shut that aspect of my life and our world down and, and to sort of say, well, I don't want to write into those subjects that might make me feel sad or might make me weep at my computer. And in fact, I'm restored by uh, by delving into those. I don't uh, those subjects. I don't find 
um, you know, obviously death is sad, and, and I do and I do cry out of sorrow sometimes when I'm writing and when I'm reading. But ultimately, it makes me feel less alone to write into those aspects of human experience. I, I was about to say something similar, which is that by by reading another person who has lived through something as difficult as what you're experiencing, you you feel that you're not the first person to have felt that. And it, to some extent, you know, we, 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 we love the notion of being original, of being the first person who has felt something. But in another way, we, we want someone on the road with us who can tell us, you know, this, what you're feeling here, I have felt it, and here are words to express that feeling that is very difficult to put into words. Right. Yeah. I think that that's it. Company. Company. <laughs> we, you know, that's that's what art does. Um, in all, excuse me, in all forms, right? It it speaks across generation, across culture, gender, age. I mean, it's the most amazing thing, I think, to read the words of somebody who, you know, was writing 500 years ago, and what they have to say to you is still true today. And and And, Brave brave Enough comes out of of such an urge, or does it come out of the urge that people have had when they read you to, to... to get some kind of an anthology, I mean, in in the true sense of a, you know, the most beautiful flowers in a vase, which is what the origin of the word anthology means, for you to anthologize your work and give them a few moments to take repose by reading those those phrases. You know, Brianna was really born out of strangely. I mean, here it is, this book of quotes by me, and yet it's the book that was not born of me in in some strange way. Uh, What I mean by that is the reason it exists is because so many people online, it's essentially born of an Internet culture, were quoting passages and sentences and phrases from my books and my talks. And I was getting these emails from people with photographs attached of of tattoos that they had, had gotten that were like lines, you know, lines from my books, one of the most common tattoos of my quotes is how wild it was, let it be, the last line of wild. And I was noticing this, but more to the point, my publisher noticed it, and they asked me about the idea of actually gathering these quotes and and putting it together in a book. And my first hesitation was um, that I didn't want it to be like, oh my goodness, I'm so wise, let me... Let me gather my, my wisdoms together and offer it to you. I, what I wanted was the reverse, uh, you know, was to just say, here are all these phrases and sentences that people have found useful, and I will gather them. But based on really my, my guiding light in, in, gather, in, in, in creating this book was what, what are readers responding to? So I went on Pinterest and Instagram and Twitter, and I essentially crowdsourced the book. So the quotes that were the most popular or meaningful or useful, that's what ended up in Brave Enough. And and when you, since we were talking in a way around the issue of reading and rereading, when when you came upon what was most popular in, in your work, 
Um, did you did, did you discover something new or reread them in a different way or understand them in another way than when they had first appeared in the book? Was there were there some moments of of consonance and others of dissonance that happened? Yes, what I found, for example, that that quote, "How wild it was to let it be." What I came to realize when I saw, you know, how popular that that line was, for example, is that that its meaning was changing based on who was using it. Uh, I wrote that line as the last line of my book for reasons that were purely having to do with it was a literary decision. As you know, that that was. You know, all the sentences that came before that sentence led to that sentence. And it means something within the context of the book. But, of course, when somebody goes so far as to have that sentence tattooed on his or her body, it, it, it means something else in his or her life. And that is, that is the power of literature, is that we, we take books and stories and poems into our own hearts. We, we let them tell a story to us about ourselves. People aren't getting that line tattooed on their body because they love me. They're getting that line tattooed on their body because that line speaks to them about their life and their story. And I love that. I think that it's, it's one of the, I mean, that's, that's what we do. I, I even write about, um, you know, in, in wild when I, when I write about the way that I, uh, use language, you know, I would say things like, I am not afraid to myself or, um, you know, I quoted in my mind Winston Churchill, uh, never give in. He wasn't speaking to a young woman hiking the Pacific Crest Trail when he, when he uttered those words, but I decided that I would take those words and make them have meaning in my own life. And that's, and that's what other people have done. Um, so it, it is a wonderful kind of, um, transference that goes on that I say one thing and then, and then when people take it into their lives, it means another thing.